Hi everyone, welcome back to Everyday Anarchism with your host Graham Colbertson. This is, as always, the show that finds anarchism, mutual aid, cooperation, non-domination in your everyday life. I know I don't record these intros that often, but when I do record them, it's usually because I started a conversation with my guest that we were recording, and then we just got rolling and kept talking, and there's no good intro from my interview with that guest. So my guest today is Richard McCarthy. Uh, this episode is called The Republic of the Farmer's Market because we do start off talking about farmer's markets, which has been a major part of Richard's career, which, as you know, I think are emblematic of everyday anarchism. Most of the interview, though, is spent talking about Cooney, which is his new book about this really amazing Japanese vision for uh, a new revitalization of rural life and a new set of connections between urban and rural life, which, of course, the farmer's market is another vitally important connection between urban and rural life. That's enough for me. Probably too much already. After the music, my interview with Richard. I, I look at things from a po political perspective and we got to the point where we realized we are talking about the Republic of the farmer's market mm -hmm. and what we implemented were instruments of governance. And um, when you think about that governance, it's very interesting and appealing and it helps to explain why people keep coming back because they sense there's something here that they want in their everyday lives. So yeah. yeah, I'd love to go down that path because I don't. I, I think it's it's one of the least uh, understood element, um, and maybe that's the great strength that it's not understood. It's also not exploited. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I think that's yeah. right. But it does feel it it feels right. It feels mm -hmm. human in a way yeah. that. Um, you know, when the when a more democratic socialist or progressive or whatever you want to say praises the the supermarket, I don't want to deny the value of you know calories for people given the given the history of starvation that the human uh, no. that the human species has experienced. Yes, in some sense, the supermarket the supermarket is definitely a marvel, and in some sense, it's a it's a positive one, and mm -hmm. yet. When you ask people to talk about their relationship with supermarkets, with rare exceptions, it is dread, it is yeah. alienation, it is a utopia of food that people want to flee from. And yeah. the farm no one talks about farmers markets with with dread that I yeah. that I am aware of. I've never heard of anyone. I guess we've started now. So hello. <laughs> uh, this is uh, this is everyday anarchism. I'm your host, Graham Colbertson. My guest today is Richard McCarthy, and we are going to we are going to definitely talk about uh, Richard's new co-authored book, Cooney. But first, Richard, uh, I, I bring up farmers markets on like half of the episodes uh, on on this podcast. For to me, they're in they're emblematic of this everyday anarchist project but i haven't recorded an episode about them yet so tell us who you are and your involvement with with farmers markets and let's start there and then we can then we can get to this japanese rural <laughs> urban connection uh well thank you graham um yeah my name is richard mccarthy i am a at this point a, a longtime food movement leader um who 
though based in in New York now and and I work internationally, um, I really cut my teeth in my hometown of New Orleans, where I grew uh, very worn out from conventional political activism, uh, very tired, uh, sort of an antifa against working against David Duke and and, and, and things like that in the 1990s. Um, and I grew very weary of the fact that so much of what we who care about, you know, building a new world, um, uh, define ourselves by what we're against. And, and I couldn't point to things that describe what we're for. And I began to become really disenchanted with running to the barricades. And I wanted desperately just to run into the garden. And I started to grow and became a guerrilla gardener. And I began to see the incredible power of reimagining where we live and thinking about maybe not just my neighborhood and my city, but that it actually is, it rests on land and land next to water. And it began to develop much more of a bioregional perspective of, of, of history of place and relationships with those who I live near and who I garden with. And then that led me to collaborate with the um, uh, Federation of Southern Cooperatives um, to develop farmers markets because many, many farmers had become disenchanted um, with the city, had, had been become um, unable to access the larger marketplace of the city because the trade routes had changed. Uh, become increasingly privatized and and the globalization com competition around price small farmers were, be, were were finding it harder and harder to gain access and uh, so I began to develop farmers markets beneath the umbrella of um, market umbrella and the Crescent City farmers market in New Orleans and and it really challenged my ideas about um, organizing and organizing for something was just very different model. Um, it brought joy. It, it, it captured people's dreams of what they had hoped to do with their lives. Uh, farmers who were, were, were trapped in this, this, this system of production rather than connection and connection to consumers, connection to what people do with the food that they grow, that direct contact um, meant that I, I became part of a, I think a really very politically driven, small p politically driven um, movement of farmers markets in the 1990s. Um, right now, I come full circle and, and uh, helping to establish the World Farmers Markets Coalition based in Rome. And it is very much based on this, this concept that the markets vary depending upon where you, the farmers markets vary depending upon where you are, city, small town, I mean, there's a whole typology that, that is, is really quite interesting around how people use markets, but that they are an expression of a multi-stakeholder project that is very difficult to scale up. And its difficulty in scaling up is, I think, ultimately its great strength. Those who are interested in food security alone, well, you can come up with some very efficient mechanisms for food security delivery. A supermarket, um, a Soviet bread line, um, you know, a food bank. If you want to move volume of produce to people, there are other mechanisms to do it. Farmers markets are very finicky mechanisms. 
you have a public assembly of competing independent vendors who physically stand behind the fruits of their labor and sell the products directly to consumers. And the consumer has to go through all these different checkout lines. You know, you, and, and you, you, know, you wanna buy mushrooms. Uh, do I buy it from this guy or this woman? And, and when I purchase them, I have to exchange, have a transaction each time. And, and for those who are, you know, the, 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 the advocates of efficiency and scale find this really just troublesome and, 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 and inefficient. And what we began to learn just by, by physically being in the markets and managing them and holding ourselves and our vendors up to the standards of our, um, our, our manifesto, our, our, our rules and regulations, our, our, our mission, was that our inefficiency actually wound up being our great strength. Because while we are inefficient in moving vast volumes of product, that actually works itself into being an internal governance that ensures that the relationships are human scaled and that the finickiness of having to, you know, buy tomatoes from the tomato vendor and then have to go to um, the bread baker and, and go and, and exchange money there. Um, or as we found, we created our own currencies that, that created a whole nother interesting um, kind of stickiness in, in the economy is that you build social trust through each of these transactions. It slows you down and you queue up and you, and, and you know, you, you might be on, on food stamps and you're queuing up next to the banker and you're both trying to figure out what that kohlrabi is and who's going to do what with it. And these are the kinds of, 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 of loose social ties that farmers markets are really good at engendering. And when you think about the elements in our lives, in our everyday lives, where do we get these opportunities to build loose social ties? They're, they're, they're disappearing rapidly. And so the, 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 the curious reinvention of the ancient mechanism of the farmer's market within the shell of this like really ossified gray world of um, online transactions, <laughs> um, the farmer's market becomes this breath of fresh air because it's something very tactile. Um, it, it involves putting a human face on agriculture you get to ask questions, you get to make choices, um, and, uh, and it becomes almost like, a, uh, almost like an autonomous zone where whatever rules and regulations you know, affect your, your lives away from the place, when you step into the, the campus of the market, there is a different set of rules and regulations, and they're really refreshing and they're a glimpse of that world we wish we lived in and that's not to say that they're perfect they're a pain in the neck to maintain to 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 sustain to govern um there's some very good critique of farmers markets as white spaces that are not very friendly to people of color food stamps and USDA was one reason why that became the case um, when they went to electronic benefit transfer in the mid nineties. Um, but uh, they are also, you know, 
curiously enough, also incredibly familiar spaces for migrants and refugees who immediately recognize, oh, I know what kind of commerce I could do here. I can trade on my culture. I can trade on my knowledge and expertise that I bring to this country. And therefore, they're, they're a very um, low threshold entry point into the economy. And because of the inefficiencies, the scale of them means that you don't grow them to scale. You may build critical mass instead. So you might create a network of markets rather than one giant thing that then becomes incredibly hierarchical. Um, and, and then I'll, maybe I'll stop here, is, is they organize people around behavior rather than around some uh, rigid ideological construct other than you've got to grow it to sell it. Um, well, that's pretty much it. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's some other elements, uh, you know, and markets have different kinds of approaches and rules and regulations and definitions about what is local and who can sell and, and all of that, which means and, and I think it is it, it, it's it's building these 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 structures of of engagement, codifying the engagement that makes it one of the few political processes that we get involved with and and we really did find that we were like a republic. We were like a little a little city with with uh, and we would identify the characters in our city. you know we had the town crier, the vendor that's always complaining. You'd have the mayor of the market, the vendor who, who is kind of a convener who could usually solve problems. Um, so you had informal and formal activity. Um, but what you had was a ritual. And, and what's exciting is we've seen a you know, 300, 400% increase of them over the last 20 years. You have these new town squares emerging in um, city centers and, and towns and neighborhoods that become the city center. They become the community gathering point. They become places you don't have to pay to enter. You just walk on and, and, and use as much of this goodwill of this, this social contract that you want. And what keeps it together is that people are involved with commerce. So um, people make, make you know, increasingly good living based not on getting bigger, but getting on maybe smarter and more strategic. So yeah, it's been an extraordinary journey that continues to, to, for me, I continue to grow and learn in it, especially because it is this wonderful translation between the formal and the informal, between the urban and the rural. Um, it is this incredible meeting point. Therefore, I think they become centers of innovation, um, social and economic innovation. And I, I think also political, cultivating political leadership. Um, what we used to be, um, uh, criticized heavily was, um, you know, was primarily white middle-class places. Well, yes, um, to begin with, those are the consumers who rallied around it. Um, but we were also banished from low-income consumers because of the introduction of EBT during the Clinton administration. So that took a decade to overcome so that we could begin to develop uh, wooden currencies to translate like alchemist plastic currencies into into wood um, and uh, but the other thing is that it oh it's kind of a global north um, phenomena and and that's been really the most exciting development in the recent years and and really the reason for the formation of the world farmers markets coalition the growth of farmers markets in Africa Latin America 
um, Southeast Asia. I've been working with incredible network in Bangladesh. Um, it is because the existing food system is so wrought with problems and distrust that people are running towards this simple ancient reinvention of direct contact because they want to trust some institution in their lives. This is amazing. And, and worldwide, and, and I think the pandemic has only accelerated its growth. So what this is telling me is that um, I know you're heading to Rome soon to work on that. So sometime next year, we'll have to hear more about this because uh, I'm convinced we need an entire episode on on farmers markets. Um, the I could jump off from a million different places based on what you said. It was all fantastic. I couldn't uh, I couldn't be more excited to hear all of it. I'm going to try not to talk much because I'm tired of my own voice on this podcast. The one thing I will say that I want to grab onto, and this can take us to Japan, okay, is I love this idea. So one of the things that I like to sort of style myself as following people like Orwell and and Dwight McDonald is a as a conservative anarchist, which is to say, you know, there's Corey Robin who was on this podcast who has famously described conservatism as as, as a version of maintaining hierarchy and authority. And if that's what conservative means, there's no such thing as conservative anarchism. And the standard line that there's no such thing as conservative anarchism is fine. But if you want to say that anarchism is a response to people looking around as the processes of what we are now calling modernity, capitalism, whatever, are ramping up in, in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, people start standing up and saying, no, actually, like, why don't we just do it like we used to why don't we have a common space that we can share and if you define anarchism this way basically the entire world is anarchism if there's not a you know centralized reforming state there and i love this idea that after centuries of western uh, exploitation uh of 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 the world, really. I mean, you can call it the global south if you want, but really, it's it's everywhere. The, world, the majority of the world, yes. Yeah, and you know, <laughs> even the people within within the wealthy countries are are exploited, and the urban areas exploit the rural areas, and the urban workers are exploited. I mean, exploitation is the model, and the answer was was right there. It's the oldest answer. Go to the go to the center of your community, and 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 exchange what you what you need and 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 grow things and have conversations with people and figure it out and yeah this is going to look in, inefficient from a from from a certain standard but another word for inefficiency is like is like life community exactly. humanity it's like life <laughs> life is inefficient you, you know and uh and and farmers markets to me are are living and and life restoring yeah so let's talk about japan if you're ready, okay. sorry, or I'm, do you want to respond yeah. to that? Okay, so yeah. uh, so Japan, you know, the classic cliche about Japan, and this this cliche is true, but you can play this game with with any country or culture is like ancient and modern side by side, a place that you know the 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 place where uh, older and artisanal practices are maybe respected more than anywhere else, and also the place that has been inventing the technological future, at least since, since the 80s. Um, and I'm really struck 
that this book, Kuni, that you wrote with, uh, I'm going to get the author's name wrong, Sekihara, is that yeah, right? Sekihara, yeah. Sekihara is about, you know, this urban-rural divide, this this problem that Japan is having, which in some ways it's a, is unique to Japan. In some ways, it's the same problem we're, we're all having. Uh, urban areas are growing. They're becoming wealthy and powerful. They need to be fed. And to feed them e efficiently, you have to destroy the old ways of life and, and put in new new ways of life that are ultimately going to, you know, not only destroy the the land and the land's ability to create food, but will also destroy society as long as we keep going down this way. And and you have uh, you have found this Sisyphusian, this quixotic man who wants to uh, who wants to do it differently. So can you just let's let, tell us about that? <laughs> oh yeah, it's um my 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 interaction with with japan really began with a um a, she was an early collaborator on this project but but has since died um ryoko sato was a um uh academic in in japan who was who was fascinated with this phenomena of farmers markets and in the us so she came and we began to develop relationships uh around studying them and and she wrote a book about American farmers markets and 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 that's sort of what began a journey that then brought me into contact with with exchanges with Japan, a place so different from certainly New Orleans um, where you know New Orleans is all about blending everything and Japan is all about keeping things separate and um, you know very different rela relationship with uh, uh, with food and culture. And uh, and then these learning exchanges were looking at disaster recovery and um, and dignity uh, and how to integrate that into planning. Um, and then this this whole issue of rural uh, rural innovation. And it was the Japan Society who who, who brought us together. And he, he, it um, they have a they have a they have a major problem in Japan. For one, they do not really, by and large, allow for immigration. So the idea of the nation and Japanese uh, purity and, and, and precision and, and uh, you know, th these are caricature ideas about Japan, but they, they're, they're, they're pretty right on, um, is yielding some really serious problems because if you do not grow um, a new population, uh, and you start to shrink, um, then the model that we have built, you know, the, the sort of 20, 20th century consensus model, corporatist model, social democratic model, capitalist model of growth and urbanization, um, uh, that means that we are lucky enough to live our lives without having to put our hands in the, in the, in the ground um, and food just sort of mysteriously arrives in our supermarkets. Um, that that um, is going to really struggle moving forward. And so as a result, these are serious problems. I mean, in small rural villages, rice growing villages that are part of the national identity of who they are, are, are no longer functioning. They um, are losing population and they, 
not only are having a hard time finding someone to run for village mayor, they they can't find anyone to vote for them. I mean, <laughs> these these are these are like disappearing communities, and they're doing some crazy, wonderful things to try and address it. Uh, you know, kind of the government paying for some kind of village ten tender, you know, um, app to try and get dating, to try and lure people, and you know, it's just fascinating. Um, and I think we can learn from that because if you look at, you know, what it means to be a forgotten community, one that's no longer economically viable, well, we have many parts of the United States that 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 look like that, that have that have addressed this issue of no longer viable, and. Um, so this idea of, of what can you do creatively to lure people to the rural, um, to, to smaller communities, how do you make life there? This really excites me because of the conversations around agriculture are always about production. And um, you know whether this is a, a, a slow food critique of, of production agriculture, industrial agriculture, uh, or an Italian one. The Italians have this idea of multifunctional agriculture that agriculture shouldn't just be about production, um, they codified it into law, that it should be about sustaining rural livelihoods. Well, that's a, I mean, you try and have that conversation with USDA and, and, and you're speaking different languages. I try and have it in Iowa. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is all about scale and bigger. And as opposed to looking at what sustains life in these rural communities that rely heavily on natural assets and the management of natural assets. And Tsuyoshi Sekihara grew up in Niigata Prefecture. This is on like the Sea of Japan, very beautiful mountainous kind of isolated part of Japan, four hours from Tokyo. And of course, like everyone else, he grew up wanting to get as far away from Niigata as he possibly could. Niigata, I think I, I mispronounce it. Um, and he uh, went to Tokyo, became a he was a woodworker, he came, became a designer, became successful, and then failed and had a midlife crisis and very serious crisis. And in the end, he went back to rural Japan, to, to Niigata Prefecture. Um, and in the book, Kuni is very much his story of his personal journey, which I really, uh, I, uh, I think we don't hear enough of because it takes a great deal of courage and leadership to start things, to, to manage things. And as he is a, a fan of Sisyphus, um, it's not glamorous. There's no social enterprise gimmick that will solve all problems with one click. He says, this is, this is long, hard work. And I, I, I admire that because I think it is a story not told. But there's so much to glean from his story that has to do with demographic trends, who become leaders. There's this wonderful concept of the J-turn um, in Japan, because he didn't go back to his home village, which would have been a U-turn. The U-turn is an is a, is a action of, of great failure, because you go back and you just have to plug yourself back into the um, power structure of what you grew up with, and everyone judges you for returning because you were a failure. He went to someplace near home, like home, and as a result, he became this rather curious figure because he was a lot like them, but it, they didn't know him. And therefore, he could risk doing strange things like getting volunteers of seniors and children to clean the forest, to um, do something that used to be done by the community, 
but had been abandoned and was taken over by the local government through federal funds, or not federal, but central government funds. And, and that those funds have dried up because things are not well financially in Japan, and therefore it's just not happening. And this idea that we have abandoned our role to live in a community and take care of its ecosystem, he thought was just tragic. And what he found was that so did some other people. And it wasn't saying, you know, I want to create a utopia here. He's like, we've got to take care of what is our responsibility. And that began to build and over the years, now 20 years or so later, is an NGO, a nonprofit organization that by and large aggregates and replaces the role of local government to provide social services for the people in the community, as well as to reinvent the idea of community. And when he started to talk about this, when I met him, this is when I got excited because I thought, this sounds like a really interesting political project. And it's this idea of a sub-nationalism. And I, I had studied nationalism because I horrified and fascinated by it and, 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 and thought, wow, this is a little bit like um, Benedict Anderson, who's a theorist on nationalism, you know, said, you know, nations are strange political constructs because they're an idea. They're an idea that we have something in common. I'll never know everyone in my nation, but we agree that we have something in common in that social construct. And what he was doing was like creating an imagined community of this dislocated competitive part of rural Joetsu where they fight for resources that one village tries to get as they each shrink. That sounded a lot like what I remember in the American South where Mississippi fights with Louisiana to figure out what resources to get. We're gonna go lower and lower and lower. Instead he said, well, why don't we just stabilize and grow, not even grow, but stabilize what we have and do what we do and reach into our cultural assets, reach into our shared experiences and actually make life worth living here. And we do that under this, this, this NGO. Now an NGO can be like another bureaucratic yeah. instrument. It could be very top down. Um, and certainly it took a leadership of an individual. So, you know, there is, you know, a certain amount of visionary leadership, but that he also knew that it couldn't just be him doing it. And then, you know, and, and, and then what happens? Um, but that we need to create the experiences that regenerate our communities, regenerate the stories we tell ourselves of who we are. And, um, and, and that, that we need to be autonomous. And so he was like, autonomous? I, I, who, whose ideas are you in, inspired by? I asked him. And he said, oh, I read, I read, I read science, I read art. You know, he was very vague. And I was like, is this guy a man of the right or the left? I can't figure it out. And uh, one of the, the, the most, you know, exciting projects that they had done was to restore the temple. Um, and, you know, and then he spent all this time in the temple. And, and so I was like, okay, is this a man of the right or the left? I, I, I can't figure it out. And um, I mean, although I, I'm beginning to figure it out. Um, and, uh, and I think ultimately why that was so appealing to me was when I spent all these years in farmer's markets, 
I love the fact that it was like a wormhole in the universe between the libertarian left and the libertarian right. Mm -hmm. And I like that space because I learned something. I become humbled. I realize I know nothing about what farmers, decisions farmers have to make. And they're libertarian, right? Well, that's their experience. That's their worldview. But if we can find a safe space to operate, we can reinvent our social con construct and our social contract based on what we do together and what we do together builds a new political narrative of who we want to become and the who we want to become is is sort of this issue of, of Cooney and I'll describe what Cooney is um, itself because it's a peculiar word and and it's it's a provocative one because it means the nation it was a, I think eighth century uh, name for where the national um, capital was and Cooney is referred to as like you know the nation during that golden age when things were really good in the eighth century and um and therefore there's a sort of nativistic element of him wanting to hearken back to a period of political creativity in japan but not talk about the nation and again a nation that doesn't let in foreigners so you know there, there's some very interesting tensions here um, but actually to, to re reimagine it as community. So Cooney equals community. But it's not autonomous as in it's sort of a back to the land, to hell with you in the cities um, perspective. But their whole business model of their region is to grow rice and all the agricultural products and process them as they do beautifully in natural, um, traditional ways without chemical inputs, et cetera. But to do so in such a way that actually is, is autonomous, maybe from local government, but not autonomous from the rest of the world. So importantly, what they're building is a community that is linked to the world. And, and their greatest link are to peoples and cities. Because peoples and cities, like Sekihara, when he lived in a city, are lost. They're, 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 they're disconnected from nature. They're disconnected from each other. They're cogs in a wheel. And they crave going out to the countryside to smell fresh air, to rediscover wildness and beauty and, and community. And so community is not like our little community isolated with boundaries around it in the way that a nation is. It's actually community is a process of, of bridging. And that excited me because that's why I did farmers markets was I wanted to bridge urban and with rural because we've lost track of who each of us is and we don't even know how to communicate with each other. And certainly the recent elections have reinforced that. And so this idea of Cooney being something that we can all achieve, it's not just a Japanese thing. He has some very specific, you know, issues about the right size of a community, about pluralism, about um, the relationship with consumers is not just a transactional one. Um, but that when you buy products from their community, um, and when their community is like 15, 20 different villages in the, of a region that they now refer to as this, 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 um, this Cooney, is um, you become uh, party to the rice covenant. So that when you are a consumer of their products, you now have a almost like an honorary citizenship in their community. And you can come here during times of crisis 
pandemic, earthquake, tsunami, I mean, Japan has them all, um, and, and find safe haven in this place. And that is a, a, like a real insurance policy. And, um, and it's also a place where people find a sense of meaning and connectedness. And, and when you come to the community, there are, you know, 200 year old, beautiful um, wooden farmhouses that they are slowly restoring. And they're restoring them into community centers and um, a cafe and a museum. And this, this whole phenomena of low tech community museums are something that I, I have to say, I see all over the world. It's such an interesting expression to say, you know, the, our economic reality may not project this image, but some of us here care about who we are and where we are and where we've been. And this phenomena of these like community museums is such a, I think an interesting expression of just that. So the fact that that was there excited me. Um, but that is, um, well, that sort of scratches the surface of, of, of what it was. And I, I thought his ideas, his approach and the work that they do, he's no longer the director of the organization, um, represents something that should spark our questions about the right size of a community. You know, what is the right scale that um, is conducive for democracy, um, for uh, building community? Um, what is the relationship in our transactions that could be more meaningful? Um, and why are we so obsessed with the city? <laughs> why, why, why is that model that we externalize all the costs that for, for living here, we tell ourselves that, oh, it's much more sustainable, and, and yet we, 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 we shield ourselves from the true costs, whether it's CAFOs with, with animals, you know, scrunched together in these horrible conditions, whether it's uh, monocrop agriculture and pesticides, you know, why is the giant city such a great idea? Um, and I say that calling in from a giant city. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if I'm better or worse because, you know, you and I are having this conversation. Uh, you're in New York. I'm in Chapel Hill, which is, you know, a, a suburban city, uh, which has in many cases, uh, all, in many cases is worse than a than a city. I mean, you know, we we try and have our little bus system, but you know, you've embraced you gotta, sprawl. Yes, uh, yes, cars and sprawl. Uh, but but you know, uh, true. Uh, and yet, I find the suburbs really the most interesting, vibrant part of most of America now, because they've largely fallen apart, and now they're being reinvented, rather, rather with no plan. Um, <laughs> but you see people re-inhabiting strip malls and putting in churches and community centers and post offices and farmers markets. And um, so things are, are moving, things are changing, um, but change can happen to us or we can be protagonists in it. And I think this book is to try and help people find how can, how can you be a protagonist and, and make decisions and, and connect urban to rural, which is, I, I think, one of the one of the more important acts we can do, because the dominant paradigm, regardless of your political perspective, you know, that the, of whoever runs runs our show, is that large cities are the future, and we, we keep telling ourselves this. 
you know, what percentage of the world's population live in cities, as if it's inevitable. It doesn't have to be inevitable. Yeah, I mean, it does seem, in, at least in American elections, your choices are like rural resentment or urban condescension. Are you, are, yeah. do, you do you want to vote for rural resentment or urban condescension? These, these are the two options. Um, I want to stress the, the reason why I started this podcast was because I was so frustrated with what I saw as, you know, just the absolute paucity of options. If you were thinking about how to make a, a different world, and as you say, you know, a, a, a democratic socialism, a new deal type idea, I'll take that over, I'll take that over what we what we have, but you know, uh, I read recently in an interview with Kim Stanley Robinson where he said something like, "The reason why I keep evoking democratic socialism as the answer is because no one's working on anything else." And uh, it's it's small, but what you've described in this book is is something else, is another way. Um, for yeah. listeners who haven't read the book, I mean, I highly. I highly recommend it. I devoured it. It was short. It's interspersed chapters between Sekihara's experiences and Richard um, explaining his own interpretation and way of understanding this and connecting it to, you know, our issues, those of us in, in the West and in the United States. Um, it's something different that seems, you know, dare I say, scalable. If by scalable you mean <laughs> you could do it in many places, in many different ways, yeah. not hierarchically scalable, in the same way that the farmer's market is scalable in the sense of you can sprout so many uh, so many new plants off of this one oak tree. That's, I mean, that, that might be scalable, but it's not the, it's, it's not what people mean when they say scalable. It can't be centralized. Um, and yeah. this, this idea that there are different ways that do not depend on size that do not depend on efficiency, that the options are not corporations run everything or the government runs everything, but we figure out communities that are a good size and the communities do what has to be done, which really, when it comes down to it, is 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 always the answer. Let me tell you, governments don't do anything and neither do corporations. Ultimately, people who feel beholden to those governments or those corporations take those actions. And we, I know we've all seen places where uh, the people who were supposed to do things just didn't do it, either in protest or laziness or whatever. This idea that you need this organization, I mean, uh, Okay, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna stop I'm gonna stop there before I. Uh... Well, but but I think but I, I think that what you know it's interesting and I, I like Kim Stanley Robinson's writings a lot, um, because he is asking questions, um, but he, like like all of us, are trained to look at certain places for where the answers are, and if you look at that level of, government programs, um, well. Government programs aren't invented by well-meaning civil servants um, and, and professionals. Um, they're invented by community people who see a problem, they seize on it, they find a solution, and then they replicate it and they um, organize around it, and then the result is a good policy. Um, uh, farmers markets are, are such a great example of this. It's, it's why there's such beacons of, of innovation. 
when we could not um, operate a farmer's market legally in New Orleans. We worked with <laughs> local government and, and they were very the municipal, you know, the municipality was very res receptive. Um, and we developed, we found a way with interim zoning districts and all that kind of stuff. And, and, but still the health department was the problem. And the health department said, can't sell food out in the open. It's a pathogen. You know, you're going to kill people and food is a pathogen. And what we found was a creative way to ensure that the markets were deemed by city council as festivals. And as we all know, in Louisiana, festivals are exempt from health department oversight because of church festivals. And that's good public policy. Now, it should yield maybe more formalized policies, but I think our comfort level has got to grow with the informal. The infor and this is where conservatives, you know, nod their heads and say precisely. Yeah. Um, but it is the informal that we should be, we, sh we should feel at home in that space. It's where we push boundaries. You know, laws change and, and, and governments adjust and adapt to what we want to see happen. Food trucks, had you told me 30 years ago, you're going to see people eating out of trucks all over the country, I would have said, there's just no way. I mean, you see it in movies from the past or in immigrant neighborhoods, but that's just not going to happen. Well, now it's quite clear that food only tastes good if it's been produced atop a vehicle with rubber wheels, um, you know, rubber tires. I mean, it, it, and, and the fact that they're able to operate and push the boundaries of zoning and, and, and health permits is because people want them. And, um, and I, I, I look at the, the food trucks and I, I, I see pirate ships um, and, and they're sort of expressions of, of, of a world, this pop-up world that people want. And they want it because the consensus is otherwise brick and mortar boredom. And, um, and so, uh, what I like about, about Cooney is that it's a rural point of view. And most of what we read, me included, is an urban point of view. And I think one of the problems we have, and it's why rural resentment becomes like your only choice, um, is because we haven't heard from, we haven't paid attention to rural imagination. And, um, and I, I spend more and more of my time in rural New York in the Finger Lakes and I see so much imagination at play. I see so many places where people are reimagining where they live because of what they're doing and they're finding opportunity. And they're finding opportunity that is economically viable, partly because those of us in the cities are like, I want out, I want something else. This is, you know, I, I crave authenticity. And, you know, there's a whole authenticity industry of, you know, is it real, is it pretend real? But, but, Clearly there is, there's a desire because embedded in that is I just want to stop being lied to. I want to connect to imperfection and people, and it's why I, I, food, you know, people who grow food are quite diverse and I cannot, I don't have to agree with their politics, but I admire the way they grow. And then we learn how to navigate coexistence. I mean, these are the kinds of things that the democratic impulses that have been, 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 been dragged out of our everyday lives. And we need to integrate them into them 
Otherwise, we might as well just build boundaries. <laughs> that that seems to me, I'm sorry to say, a great place to to end it. Um, <laughs> but you're you know, you're right. There are there are different ways of of organizing the world, and um, you've you've brought us a story of what well, two Cooney and farmers markets, and it it does it it must be more democratic, and it must, as you say, you know, alter the way we think about hierarchies, especially the urban rural hierarchy, no matter what anyone tells you. Um, the, it is it is not from cities that food comes from. It is it is not from cities that the materials that your home is built out of comes from. Everything that flows into the city has come from somewhere else. And if if you let it, the city will be its own little sort of like neo-colonial or or neo-imperialist thing, which is why you get rural yeah. people voting for Trump. And uh, there has to be another way to organize and there has to be a way to find new connections. Absolutely. That's that's it. That's exactly it. I I, I was humbled greatly as I began to work more and more with farmers and realized how smug and urban and ignorant <laughs> I was. And um, uh, and it, it is a process of a lot more listening and watching and, and, and giving space for farmers to come in and bring soft edges to very hard places. Um, they, they bring with them their culture, their knowledge and expertise, and, and, um, and they make cities better places. And that's why we need to make space for them. Wonderful. Well, please keep making those spaces, keep making these connections. Richard McCarthy, thank you so much. The book is Cooney, A Japanese Vision and Practice for Urban-Rural Connection. Thank you, Graham. Thank you so much. <laughs>